Welcome to season six of the RAG podcast. Now, for those of you who don't know, the RAG stands for Recruitment Agency Growth. And this show has been around since early 2019. And every week, we are obsessed with finding out how the world's most successful and innovative recruitment agencies and their founders have got to where they are today. In season six, alongside the founder's story and the inside information of that business, I also want to focus on the reality of today's economy. There is so much noise about this inevitable recession that we find ourselves in right now. And where it's going to go, is it really having an impact on the recruitment sector? Are they seeing any change in job flow? Are they seeing any change in candidate control or activity? What is going on? I want to find out. So every single week, I want to forget the propaganda, forget the noise. I'm going to speak to a real life recruitment owner and find out what is going on in their business. I will bring it to you every single Wednesday from 12 o'clock across multiple platforms. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the RAG podcast on this week's show. I'm delighted to be joined by Rohil Ahmad. Rohil is the managing partner and co-founder of Forsyth Barnes. I interviewed his partner Scott a few years ago in the pandemic and I've watched their journey ever since. These guys are just pushing 80 staff across Nottingham, London and New York and they specialize in the exec search and leadership roles across three different sectors. Fintech, they look into um, the sports sector and also what they call e-tail, which is like e-commerce and retail. Um, founded in 2015, these guys, two guys who've known each other before, had a mission to grow something big with scale and they've thrown everything at it. And now, almost eight years later, 80 staff, and they're looking at their next phase of growth to a 60 million valuation. They've just given away 33% of the business to the staff and they are growing like crazy. So the RAG is all about growth. Everyone looks at it in a different way. These guys have got the clearest uh, path that I've spoken to for a long time and I can't wait to deliver this episode to you. So if you're looking at growing, you're looking at an exit or an IPO, then this is the episode for you. Without further ado, Rohil, welcome to the RAG podcast. Great to have you. Thank you. Appreciate it. No problem. In New York City, while I'm sat here in Sheffield, feels very uh, <laughs> feels very glamorous compared to me. It's well, look, I live in Milton Keynes, so uh, <laughs> that that's my usual state, right? I don't know how glamorous that is, but no, it's, it's nice to be out in New York as, as much as I can get out with the guys as well. Yeah, I was there last week, and we were just talking about it offline. It's um, you know, it's an, it's an epic city, a really cool place. Yes. Whenever I speak to people who live there or know it really well, they think Manhattan's a bit of a shithole, and they all just like the, the suburban life, which is. I suppose London's a bit like that in the centre. You don't really bother with it as much when you live there. I think that's like anything, mate. I think if you live in somewhere, you massively underestimate and undervalue the place that you're in. Like yeah. if we are travelling somewhere, and usually from the ride from the airport to wherever I'm headed, mm. I'm attentive, I'm observant, I'm appreciative of like the view and surroundings. How often do you do that when you get to Heathrow or something and you're looking around? And yeah, like yeah. London's a lot nicer than give it credit for. Um, yeah, but it's just I'm here less often, so I take notes of things more. <laughs> Fair. So t- tell us about, before we get into it, I've, I've actually had Scott, your partner, on the show in the past. But yeah. do us a favour and give us the bird's eye view of, of Foresight Barnes today, your role on a high level, come, like how many people you got, what, what you actually do, and then we'll go back and tell the story. 
Yeah, cool. So a lot's changed since COVID time when Scott would have been on. And I was actually on with Hisham back in when he was working with you guys back in 2017, 2018. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. the business changed so much since then, everything as well. Um, FB, mid-senior exec um, business, we operate across three core sectors, which are fintech, e-tail, so a lot of your online consumer yeah. businesses and fashion brands and, and so on as well. Uh, and sports and entertainment um, and being sports nuts, like that's huge for us as well because we get a lot of perks in that. And some actually publications coming out recently. Um, we've just been selected as a partner to look for Notts County's CEO. Uh, and Scott's a huge county fan. I say huge county fan, he's been to about one game, but yeah, he's, he's a county fan. Um, so that's huge for us as well. Uh, pushing 80 people globally, three offices currently, which is London, Nottingham and New York. Yeah. Um, but designs to expand on that as quick as possible. So West Coast America will be the next one, like an LA type um, office. And then we're doing our research and seriously considering looking into the Dubai market as well, as a view to be our opening, A to the Middle East, but then also to Asia Pacific and, and Oz and so on as well from there, um, which should like further fuel our international growth. Wow, that is pretty cool. And you started 2015, right? 16. 2016. So... What's that? Seven ish years. Eight, our eighth year. We're in our eighth year now. Yeah. Year. yeah. Gone quick? Yes. But for the most part, some weeks have felt slower than the years. <laughs> um, but no, look, it's been a phenomenal ride. To think back to where we started, archetypal type story of glorified cupboard, which was sold to us as an office when we started out. Yeah. We didn't have a window in there. So what we did is we got like the cheapest kind of Ikea canvas of like the London skyline, got some black gaffer tape, put it down the middle, across the middle and that to make a window frame. And that was our <laughs> view into um, London at the time. Um, and we've always been a, a true bootstrapped business as well, right? So not taking a, a dime from anyone, no. um, not borrowed any money from anyone or anything. So to come from where we've come from to where we are right now, don't get me wrong, the, the journey's not finished. We haven't completed it, per se, but um, it's phenomenal. It feels phenomenal. And I think that's a real big source of pride, not just for us, but for everyone in the business. Everything that we have and that the guys have around them and the facilities or the tech or the all the perks and everything, it's all paid for off the back of their success. Yeah. I think that's that's something that everyone can be proud of in the business as well. Yeah, it makes sense. So when you go back to the journey, yep. where did the relationship with you and Scott come from? Uh, fortune and fate, to be honest. Um, so we started in a company called TJC in 2010, a few months apart, and we just got put on the same desk together. Um, I was doing a lot of the, the interim project stuff. He was doing a lot of the, the permits next stuff in the insurance market. And we just got put together and paired together. Yeah. Um, and I always say that I got lucky and being paired with them because we we grew a friendship and became mates. And then from there became business partners. We're still mates. Yeah. Um, we trained together, got a very similar um, way of thinking, which is stead us in good stead for a lot of the business, but also our personalities are very different. So over the last few years, our skill sets now come to the fore for different reasons. Whereas the first few years, we're probably doubling up on too much. Um, and overlapping on, on way too many things. But then we started to split out our roles as well. Um, so since then, so back from 2010, and I would say probably for the first seven odd years, when did you get married? 
got married about 15, 16 times, but for the first, and then they moved up, but for about the first seven years, probably spent more time with him than Kay did, his wife. Yeah. Overall, so gotten to know each other pretty well, got to piss each other off enough times as well. Did you, you worked at, is it Timothy James recruitment? Yeah. And then yeah. You, you went off and did a few other bits, didn't you? Did he, did he, did you both go in different directions for a while before you came back together? Yeah, only ever so shortly. So I went off and joined Lawrence Harvey. Um, uh, did I meet Tom Entry? I think I met Tom Entry. Um, Jordan Lawrence Harvey, um, all honest, I wasn't doing bad, but I wasn't pulling up any trees there compared to what I'd done at TJC before. But then where Scott had gone to Business School McLean Moore, who were one of the founders, was well, two of the founders, ex-TJC, one was the ex-founder yeah. of TJC. Um, they gave me a call and asked me to set a contract for those guys because they were kind of, I think they had like two contractors at the time. And they were trying to draw desk. They weren't cracking contracts. Um, and obviously, they knew my background was was a strong contract background at the time. Yeah. Um, so then, joining those guys, and we've been pretty much together ever since. And when was the time you decided you were going to start your own business? When I think there was a bit of a realization from both of us that we're like effectively running the business, um, and we're probably working harder than the founders and the owners of that business. And there's a lot of frustration there as well. Um, so it's at that point where we start to look at things. And look, if being honest, in terms of what T, what, T, what uh, FB's come today and our ambitions for it today, it wasn't exactly that at the beginning. No. First, it was, we thought we could just do recruitment in what we thought it was better. Um, and so that's why we did it. But now a lot has changed, our ambitions change. We've got bigger designs for the business in terms of scale, in terms of growth. In terms of how we want to drive change and innovation, in terms of the way we structure our business, so it's become something so much more than we probably first thought out that it was going to be. But then, in some ways, it's on the same path of so much of what we wanted to be. When we talk about it being a global business, when we talk about the EMI scheme, we always knew we wanted to do things like that as well. So when you you say like you were running it for somebody else, I think that's a really classic scenario, right? Where one or two people work together their leadership in another agency where the owners maybe have took their eye off the ball perhaps, or just not working as hard. And yeah. can you remember the conversation where what the day you both said, like, we're doing it now. And then what the journey was like to get into starting from there. Yeah, we were, we just gone through a phase of uh, playing squash together a lot. And at the beginning he was trouncing me every game, but I'd never played squash before. And it was, I think he beat me about 10 games in a row or something like that. And it, it all just kind of, um, like the ideas and so on just started formulating from there. Um, so yeah, and it was just like, we toyed around with the idea then we put it on pause and so on, but then there would have been some frustrations at some parts and so on as well. So um, I think it came back to that thing that both of us felt that uninhibited, we could do a better job because our ambitions were greater. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of the guys in FB who know as well will say from an ambition perspective, like, we do try and sh overshoot ourselves and try and take on too much with a view of achieving a lot in the business as well. I think yeah. that's what stead us a good stead for these seven plus years now. So where did the name come from? Everyone always asks us this and Scott tries to come up with some sort of narrative or story. Um, look, it, it essentially there's a few things in it is we, we were doing a lot of the exec search piece. So we wanted something that had a bit of weight behind it yeah. and a bit of tradition behind it. 
no disrespect to anyone, but I didn't want something that sounded like a, a cheesy name. I couldn't imagine like a CEO trusting us with their most important role on a retained basis if it had like a bit of a crappy name to the business or a bit of a cheapy sounding name to the business. So there was that. So we wanted something and we looked at a lot of businesses and they often tend to have names as their business names. Yeah. Um, so there was that. And then we always knew we wanted something British sounding as well because we always always had that plan to become a global business. So for us, it's always been important that we were championing British business on a global scale. Um, wow. NFB, Four South Bounds, it, it does. And we could shorten it to FB. The bit that we didn't realize, and in the hindsight, it sounds really stupid, when we tried to then register domains of like FB.com and stuff like that, that's taken up by Facebook. Yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> so we, we couldn't do things like that. We got hit with a really stupid um, early threats of a lawsuit in our first few weeks. Why? So there was another business called Forsyth Group, and they'd moved to Barnes. And at the beginning, we were Forsyth Barnes Group. Right. And it was complete. We hadn't, I'd never even heard of them. They were yeah, never yeah. on our radar, never came across them. We didn't Barnes search for them. Right? You're sorry? Barnes in southwest London. Like yeah. And they've been in the industry for a good few years, but never came up in anything of like in our previous experience in the industry. Recruitment either. firm as well. Yeah, recruitment firm. Yeah. Um, but like small, like 15, 20 people. So we never competed with them on anything at all. And then they, in the first few weeks, we got a, a legal letter. And they said that we we're fraudulently claiming to be them, like cease and desist, shut down the company, change your names, blah, blah, blah. And we didn't have the money for a lawyer. Yeah. So, we, I mean, I've got, I did a law degree, but yeah. so we, they, they sent it to us late on a Friday, first few weeks, we mulled it over and then like formulated a response and opened the response with, of all the ask nine letters to receive on a Friday evening, this has to be the most. Yeah. And we just went back and basically, do not come for it. If, if you want to try, come for it. We haven't done anything wrong. We've never heard of you guys. You guys are insignificant to, for what we want to go out and do. We're not competing, like go for it if you want to try anything. Um, and then the next few months we would take calls knowing that it was set, because we never received a single call previously. Mm. But the next few months we were then receiving calls from them of, oh, is this a Forsyth group? It's like, no, no, this is not them. We're a completely different business. If you want them, here's the number, here's the people, yeah. go on this website, that type of thing. And then after maybe about three or four months, they stopped doing that. And it was them doing it. It was set up by them. It was either them doing it or set up by them. It was really obvious because we never received a single call pre that letter yeah. and then loads post. And then it just died off after about, I think, three or four months. It must have seriously had like some serious issues as a business. If they, they probably thought they were going to make some money out of it. <laughs> not honestly, not a clue. It's just for someone who's been in the industry, I think the founder has been in the industry for something like 30 years. Like we generally weren't trying to pass stuff. I've never even heard of them. Like yeah, yeah, focus yeah. on yourselves rather than trying to get some money in a crappy way. So what was the business at the beginning? Like, what did you set out? Obviously, you got the British name, you wanted to be international, you had yeah. these ideas, but you, what what did you set out to recruit at the beginning? What was like the initial focus? So we didn't really even have any special. If I'm being really honest, at the beginning, it was making sure we had a good, successful, profitable business. Um, neither Scott and I don't before. So we'd always worked in like growth and startup type environments, scale type environments, never worked for a corporate. Um, so could we do it? Um, it was much more at the senior end. Being really honest, I think it's a similar story for some, where it was whatever we could get 
that we were comfortable and confident we could fill at the senior end. We weren't overly picky uh, in doing that. I'd set up desks and markets for previous businesses and someone in a different desk and then kind of handed it on in my past. So I was more reliant, similar with Scott, we were more reliant on our techniques and our processes more than like an over-reliance on subject matter knowledge, if that makes sense. And we were confident, as we proved as well, we could apply it from one industry to another to another, because we'd done that previously for others. So at the beginning, it was more controversial. What is your approach to entering a new market? Is it like, for example, some, some people will just do hard BD and others will do, it'll be all about the candidate gen and they'll just flip from that. What, what, what were you, how were you taught in that respect to open a new market? So the good thing, I think, from both of us, we're both hard BD, but our techniques were a little bit different in that Scott did a lot more of uh, reversing them and so on when he's working with senior candidates. I did a lot more of networking in what you probably call typical BD networking around clients and so on as well. Um, so we kind of pulled the two together, if that makes sense. Yeah. But both of us were big on our numbers. Both of us were like minimum minimum i've got a five decent conversations a day and our standards on what a decent conversation was pretty high as well yeah. but we'd be always trying to push for eight to ten um a day on conversations especially when you get trying to get things up, uh, off, off the ground yeah 100 percent. so what in the first year then take us through that early trajectory and then we'll skip through to present day first year was as much we committed to each other that we were going to spend as much time on sales in sales hours so as much as we possibly could, admin, uh, invoicing, other than like calling through for them, invoicing, IT, all out of those, uh, contacts and your CRM work and things like that, and set up an IT work in that respect, all out of hours. It was be on the phones as much as you possibly can. The only time we come away from the phones is if we're having to actually call to chase an overdue invoice or anything like that, or if it's a business hours conversation that we just can't do out of hours with the bank or yeah, yeah. Uh, organization, or getting the insurances sorted out or anything like that. But other than yeah. that, there's a clear thing. And we were strict with each other. We were turning up pre-8.30 every single day. That We weren't Where letting each office? other off. Where was the office? Uh, London, Old Street. Way. Right, so you stayed in, you weren't, you didn't, there was no Nottingham or anything like that. Was it, was no, no, not, not so we opened up uh, 2017, Feb 14th, 2017. Um, so we didn't have that for the first year. And so Scott was living in London and lived with me for a period of time. Right. And I was, I had a place in Kingston. Right. Um, but we were strict with each other. Like we weren't, we weren't going to relax and say, oh, we'll start at 10 today or yeah, you work from home today or anything like that. It was, we're in the office, we're together, hold each other to account like we would do if we were still working with someone else. Hmm. And what were the results like from that? Good. I mean, we started developing accounts pretty quickly. Some big accounts, um, the likes of Adobe and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, pretty good after that. And it was, it was like I said, getting things off the ground. We'd underestimated a lot of the the things that, like the invoice chasing, in our head we'd gone into it thinking, if I've got to chase a single invoice, what is it, a five minute job even if I've got to call them up? And quickly we found that a five minute job getting sent around the houses to some clients and then POs and this and that, five minute job would become like an hour and a half job and just one invoice on certain things. That, that we massively underestimated. But the good thing was there's two of us. So there was always a point that one of us was on the phone on front of line sales. Did you think about hiring in that year? What, in the first year? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, we had we had people in again 
we were pretty smart in what we did. We we had interns in that would help us with some of the admin bits and so on as well. Uh, we started taking people on pretty quickly. Um, we hired pretty much straight away. Yeah. Um, we then really quickly moved to a different office um, in King's Cross. We brought people on there like really, really quickly. To what, when the end of the first year, what did the business look like? What is what, sorry? What did it look like, the business at the end of the first year? Office in King's Cross, Knott's plans were in motion because we'd, we'd opened that in February, so we would have done a lot of viewings and hiring and stuff for that at the time. I'm trying to think how many people we had by the end of the first year, including us about 10, I think. Right. Eight, Which is where, where most businesses get to, and that's it, right? They never, it was it over 80% of recruitment firms never break through that, that yeah. 10. Yeah. Did you always know you were going to build something of scale? Was it, ne it was never going to be about you two just making no. good It's why our names aren't on the door. Yeah. It's, it's never been about us. It's not been an ego thing. Um, it's always been about creating a business that's bigger than us. Always. And it still is now. Yeah. So at the end of the first year, can you remember what you guys built? I ask these questions because people want to know roughly what's possible in year one. Like They always ask me those questions. No, I, honestly, no. I can pull it up and no. Um, we were still on the tools, still are now. Um, but I look at people like Samir who joined in the first year in July. We'd had some, no, honestly, I can't remember the numbers of them. I've stuck my head. Maybe close to a mil. Scott's yeah, better with like, yeah, his memory on the numbers. You're profitable, right? You're in a good position. You've got oh, yeah. You've had a great year. Yeah. Um, going into year two. And, and moving from there, how did your how did your roles as you and Scott start to evolve? And what I suppose what pillars did you need to put in place to take yourself beyond 10? Because like I said, most of the industry doesn't get beyond 10. So you two need to change and you need to think about other things around you. What what did how did that start to evolve? So I said the biggest thing that changed is we then opened knots in our year two. So we did it really, really quickly. It was always in the design, but we kind of moved the timelines up again, citing that ambition that we had. And the confidence of being able to even such a short uh, time frame of having a second office so that opened in feb um 2017. so we had hired about three or four into that one from pretty much day one yeah um and then scott was effectively running a knots and i was running london so we would come up and down to each other's offices quite a bit anyway but in some respects, we were not separated, but we had our own responsibilities between London and Knott's, but we'd also support each other. And so I would I'd take care of some stuff in Knott's, he'd take care of some stuff in London. But then as things developed, we found that what started to happen is we were both like having the same conversations with people in our own offices, across offices, unbeknownst to us. Because you, you can't, like we communicate a lot, almost every day, even now but you can't communicate every single conversation or every bit of advice that you give someone. And some of the feedback we're starting to get was, have you two spoken about this? It's like, no, why? It's like, spoken to the other one about it about half an hour ago and it's given the exact same advice on how to handle it. It's like, cool, it shows you that we've trained together. Um, but no, we haven't spoken. So we're seeing a lot of doubling up. Was that creating a similar or slightly different cultures then in those two cities? Similar, there's always gonna be slight differences. But again, we train together and we essentially grew up together, right, in the industry. So there's more similarities than differences. Yeah. And the only reason for Nottingham was because he wanted to go back up to Nottingham, was it? Or was it, a it was always in the plan. 
So like pre-starting up and stuff, we'd, we'd agreed that that was going to happen. Was it um, his, his personal choice? or Yeah, he, he, him and Cable was going to move back up to not start a family up there when they're ready. Um, he'd bought a house from memory. I think they'd bought the house. Cable moved back up a little bit earlier um, as the house was being finished. And he stayed at mine for three, four, six months, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Right. Um, and did my best to piss him off whilst he was living with me. <laughs> And it, you know, you you're in what? Well, how old are you guys then? Like late late twenties. Uh, twenty sixteen. So would have been about what twenty twenty eight. Yeah, you're relatively young lads, really. Like to think about all that responsibility you take. Yeah, but not many. I mean, I started my business at twenty nine thirty, and majority are just over that thirty mark, at least thirty 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 five. So, you know, you you started early, which is. Did, where did that aspiration to be an entrepreneur come from? Did, did you have that growing up? Was that anything? Yeah, there? I did. I did. So knowing his as well, he, he I think it was, we both done a young enterprise um, course as part of our degrees. He did, I think, business economics. I did law. I still did the young enterprise course. Um, as part of that, and he actually took it a step further, he'd set up a shake, um, a shake club is what they called it, a milkshake business in Sheffield. Uh, I think it's a metal ball actually. Right. Um, so they'd done that as a theoretical thing and then they actually took it a step further and set with his mates. So he'd already right. shown that piece as well. My inspiration came from predominantly my dad and right. something that he came over here literally with nothing, didn't speak the language when he came when he was 14. Right. And then just through saving, through working hard, ended up like doing property and, and run businesses and stuff um, in like growing up in around Northampton. Right. So it was always the influence from him. And I'll go back to, I don't know whether this came from where it came from, but weirdly I've got odd memories of being a five-year-old and on a rainy day and being stuck inside, I had um, a little math book with a little square grids on it and all my, um, I was doing IT supplies, like office supplies, phones and calculators and stuff. And I would pretend I was taking orders on a broken phone. And I don't know why that was a game. Yeah. I don't know where that bit came from something would have sparked that off where i thought it was a fun game to be taking orders from customers of some sort and doing that yeah um yeah we so, obviously witnessed that entrepreneurial spirit yeah i'll put that down to my dad 100%. yeah are you spending hours on linkedin and cold outreach and want more business coming to you over your competition well if you're the founder or leader of a recruitment agency here's what we can do for you at Hoxo, we'll give you the training, support, and resources to take you from what I call an offline recruiter, reliant on posting jobs and sending in mails to open up new customers, ultimately looking like every other recruiter on LinkedIn, to being an online recruiter, being seen by over 25,000 relevant people, driving a 200% minimum increase in engagement on your profile, and seeing daily lead lists from LinkedIn that you can follow up with in six weeks' time. And if you don't perform, you don't pay. Now, why can we make such a bold, results-driven promise like this? Well, it's simple. There's two reasons. Firstly, whilst I've been building the RAG podcast, we've actually done what we say we'll do for our clients. In less than two years, we actually built a business generating from zero to over one million views per month on LinkedIn, leading to multi-million pound revenues with a sales team of me plus two people without making a single outbound cold call. Second is our track record. Not only have we done it ourselves, but we've helped over 350 agencies and over 4,000 consultants do it as well. It all in the last three years. 
Now, if that sounds of interest to you, click the link associated to this episode and we can book a call and tell you how we can help. Right, let's get back to the show. That, that, that makes sense. Not everyone has. I mean, I didn't have that, but there's a there's a there's often something I think that triggers it. So now you've got two offices and the business is more established. Take us on that journey beyond that. And um what what year would we be in now? So we're looking at 2018, 19. Yeah, we... so 18, 19, growing, just focus on growing both offices. We moved London offices quite a bit and uh, not quite relatively as well. So always outgrown the office, move to the next one, outgrown the office, move to the next one. So we moved from places like King's Cross to Old Street, where again, punching above our weight, we took a whole floor in an office in Old Street, then learned some of the lessons from that where we were responsible for everything. So even that one, if I remember, we took that office when we're still in King's Cross didn't want to spend the money on getting someone else to fit it out. So Scott ran the business for the week, like both offices, whilst um, I was doing the DIY and getting that office ready. And I lived in, in that physical office for seven days. Um, he brought me down an airbed, which had a hole in it. So I ended up sleeping in the cardboard boxes stacked from all the desks wow. that we'd ordered in and just piled those up and then just used his flat airbed as my pillow. Got and I remember it clearly because the Borough Market attack had happened that week as well. Oh shit, I remember. And I remember my mum had called me, it's like, are you all right? Are you all right? There's a bit of an attack in London. Like, I'm miles away and trust me, no one's coming near me. I stink. I'm not shower for about six days straight. <laughs> um, so we built the kitchen, we put had all the delivery for the desks, painted the whole place, um, the doors up, the meeting rooms up, all the furniture, all the TVs, it was all a self-dip job. Right whilst he was running the business. Um, so that was, what, 17, 18 type time? Did that, then moved into a WeWork in London, upgrade offices in Knots a couple of times, into bigger spaces, and then... When did, the, when did the focus, like the real focus of the business come? Like FinTech, sports? About or... 19. Right, and how did, yeah, how did, about you, 19, how did you find those specific niches that you've, you've settled on? So, Specializing in niche was something I've always been passionate about, and it was it took a bit of time for us to do it um, and change the culture of the business as well, um, and getting our people aligned to it and so on as well. But we were looking at first of all where's our success areas and where we've got like client concentration, but then we tried to look at the actual industries themselves and say what are the industries that are consistently advancing, and when you look at the way people have been shopping for the last few years. That has changed so, so much and apps and online shopping and the growth of that and then the way your boohoos and PLTs have kind of grown and so on as well. Seems such a fast moving sector. So we were happy to dive into that one um, headstrong. And FinTech, I'd done stuff when we, we never used to call it FinTech, we used to call it payments back then really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd got some experience of working things like with the UK Payments Council and things like that as well. And the way that that grows and the technological advances, both on consumer side and the B2B side, huge. So that's in the right one. And then at that point, one of the, the guys that we had in the business and not Grant, I'm looking at him right now actually, he's moved to New York. Um, his older brother was an ex-pro footballer, um, but was working, had left football, was working in rec, had seen what Grant had managed to achieve with us in such a short space of time. I mean, Grant had joined us in March, beginning of March 17, September 17, and paying him 72 and a half grand for a commission wow. check wow. Um, for a single month. So I think 
Gray's eyes lit up a little bit of that. And what's, like, he do, what, what's he had to do to get to that? What's he filled there? Second most senior person at Wilco's and is like six months in the business. Wow. And yeah. have you found that, have you guys found the role for him? Like he's been given that kind of role. He's got it all, himself. All grunt. All grunt. And honestly, I love the guy. Hmm. Um, but he didn't do anything extra special. What he did is he just followed the training that we'd given him. But I guess what made it extra special was the fact that he followed it to the T yeah. in terms of BD, in terms of networking, following up on opportunities, and then his fee negotiation as well. So it was one of the reasons the fee was so strong was because it's, as our, we teach our people, it's, it's billing on package. At that level, you should be billing on package. Yeah. Made a few concessions. I think they didn't want us to bill them for the house that they had sorted out for her. Fair. And I don't <laughs> think we build on pension. Uh, yeah. So they were the only two concessions. Um, great seeing that, seeing the opportunity. He'd been in the industry for a few years. Believed there was a market in sports, but didn't really have any proper proof and didn't have a black book. Yeah. But we liked Gray, we backed him, and great decision proved out to be as well. So we took two of the hutches, and actually we ended up with all three because we've got the youngest brother who came back from the US and joined us as well. Um, so we started off sports. So then we really honed in on those particular sectors and, and have done everything. And when you say sports, yep. that's a big word, right? What, what specifically do you recruit in sports? So at the like head office, it's not just sporting clubs, but more like head office type opportunities. So C-suite, exec level, um, and that will go across IT. We do a lot in the commercial world as well. So partnership directors and commercial directors and so on as well. Uh, a lot in the marketing world within that piece at the same time. So organization, if you want to look at the clubs, if you talk UK terms, Man United's a client of ours, Mercedes F1's a client of ours. Um, we've got um, across the different sports that we're not in. I don't know if we've done anything in rugby, although we did pitch for the Rugby League World Cup. Um, I think rugby's the only one that we haven't really operated in. Wimbledon is a client of ours. So we've done tennis, cricket, golf, football. Um, you find that they they could be niches within the niche. So like someone who could just worry about football and someone who just worries about cricket. Like. I think you've got to structure it in a slightly different way because we've got specialisms within our sectors. Right. Um, but ultimately, yes. Because then we've also done the governing bodies. So FIFA, UEFA, they're clients of ours as well. Right. Uh, Formula One and the FIA as a governing body, they're clients of ours as well. Uh, PGA Tour, European Tour, ATP, um, the NBA. Live, uh, live Golf, they've got the real Live players. Golf. Uh, we actually do. We work with them. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I don't know how it's going to work now with all the recent um, yeah. mergers and everything. But yeah, Live Golf's a client of ours. But NHL, we're on with the NHL now as an organization. And I don't just mean the clubs, I mean the actual NHL and the US yeah. too. So, do a lot in that space. We do a lot with the arenas as well. So, Madison Square Garden, you've been in New York, right? MSG is a client of ours as well. Um, so we, we're pretty lucky in that we get to like comps tickets and suites to MSG, the Staples Center, uh, Barclays Center for the Brooklyn Nets and so on as well. Um, we've had invites to events at these places as well. So it's one of the perks. We're big sports fans ourselves. So it's one of the perks that yeah, comes with. Amazing. How do you how do you structure teams? Is it is it three sixty? Is it one eighty? Like what's your method? predominantly three sixty? Got some one eighty people, but predominantly three sixty. Um, it's what we grew up with. It's what we believe in um, as a whole service. 
Um, so yeah, it's that. And then you've got individual specialisms, areas of specialisms and growing teams within that, uh, within each sector. Do you believe your leaders and managers should be revenue generators or do they properly spend their time just managing people? Well, we still are. Yeah. Scott was involved in helping to win the county gig. Yeah. I mean, I thought he was actually interviewing for the role himself at one point, but no, he went to, to pitch the county gig and he's, like I said, he's a good county fan. Um, we still are. Yeah. I'm, I'm on client meeting later on today in the US. Yeah. So everyone has got a responsibility. Yeah, everyone's got a responsibility. We're not, look, when we're big enough at a point, there's still got to be that, you, you've got to be the face of the business and, and going out meeting clients and, and so on. So I think the way that you do it might slightly develop and change, but you should be trying to build opportunities for your people. Yeah, 100%. What along that journey then to where you are now, what, what do you think is your secret to growth? Because... Like I said, most of our industry doesn't get beyond it. They never get past 10. So what have you two done, do you believe, that have enabled you to keep going from 10 to 15 to 20 to, to where you are now, which is, is it 80 you're at now? Pushing 80, yeah. I, I think first and foremost, it's our ambition between Scott and I. We've always wanted that big global business. We, I don't think we compare ourselves in the sense of trying to emulate or imitate bigger businesses, but even if I look at businesses like Lawrence Harvey, respect him incredibly, bigger than us, going longer than us. I've got no interest in recreating an LHI 2.0, but I think about them as our competition as opposed to someone else at our size right now. Oliver James, been going a lot longer than us, much bigger than us. I look at those businesses immensely, I'm thinking of them as our competition rather than someone who's of a similar size, similar, similar age, etc. And what, we track do, our success. What do, you have to, what do you think? The ambition's one thing, but yep. what are the more tactical things that you've got to do? That you're looking so, back, they're the, they're the things we did that enabled us to, to keep leapfrogging in terms of headcount and revenue and the, and the full piece. But it actually, it does start with that because it's actually building that culture. So the very first thing is you take our own ambition and if you're spreading that and building that as a culture and fostering that as a culture, where we regularly talk about it and then have provided the opportunities for people to further their career in a time frame quicker than they'll receive anywhere else. So how many people in four years or so can go from a senior consultant to an MD of not a whole office? It's not many people have got that opportunity. And it's not done on favoritism or because we spend the most time with somebody. It's, it's done on merit. How many people have got an opportunity to go from when you're 21 years old build a book of about 10 grand a week personally in about eight or nine months. By about 12 to 15 months, you then got a team of five. At that age, when you've only got about 12, 15 months experience with us, and I think he had some like 12 months or so experience in a completely different industry prior to us. So it's not like he's got five years, six years, 10 years behind him. How many other people can say they've afforded that opportunity and backed in that way and invested in that way? And now the opportunity to go and spearhead the, the team, the growth and the starting up of a, an international team with a view and a pathway put in front of him of you started off in knots. You've now got a pathway to go and uh, set something up in New York as a whole fresh team and be the, the figurehead of that and spearheading that. And then from there, go and be the figurehead of the Dubai office and be presented with that type of opportunity at his age for his experience. And it will be given that and he's got to hit the right things on the way, but it'll be given that. It's putting things like that in front of our people that has then built the culture beyond just Scott and I. And then it's the expectation and the pushing of people of 
cool, if this is what you want to achieve and that's the end goal type thing, then these are the things that you've got to hit along the way. So that all, like starting at the top, it all feeds down to the, the tactical things of developing the clients and the calls and blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's giving people real opportunity outside of what you're in control of, isn't it? It's about going, this is, you know, this is, so, you, you've got to see the, see the growth and then make sure that someone else is taking the opportunity. I think the, the, the businesses that don't grow, they want to control everything, right? I think the founders want to be the people, the leaders want to be the ones that are doing everything and they don't see that. They're not, they're not looking outside for the opportunity and they're not giving others that opportunity to, to fail and try and learn. Yeah, it's, but my job isn't to be the man. My job is to create the environment and give everyone the opportunity to fulfill, have a good fulfilling career, grow, achieve more than they think they can achieve and give them the platform to do so. So my London MD, if I think from where he's come from, he's come from Hayes, a much bigger business and spent his whole, pretty much his whole career there. And he's run bigger teams than he's running currently. But he's got the platform, the environment to do something he's never done before in a bigger way than he's ever done before. But he's got to grow and build it. So my job isn't to do, do it for him. My job is to give him all the tools as much as I can do, give him the environment, give him his development, to be able to see out his own ambition and grow within his ambition. That's my ultimate job for every single person in this business to give them that, the environment and the culture to grow, develop, and to achieve more than they think themselves is possible. So my very first job is A, do I believe it? And then B, do they believe it? Yeah. And if I've done that, then we can work on the, the kind of technical. And where do you see, I guess, what are the triggers or symptoms that you spot or you've consistently spotted that have enabled you to go, well, there's a new growth area. There's a New York, there's Dubai, there's whatever there's sports that what is there something that always crops up and you're like well you know we've hit a bit of a critical mass in an area we need to duplicate it or is there something you're doing that enables you to keep spotting that next area to go so if i think back to sports that was more instinct and intuition and belief yeah we didn't know we didn't have a black book in sports before we started off we believed in gray but then we gave him the backing and and the environment and so on as well and he went out and did a fantastic job and we just had to help refine and hone some of what he was doing the way he was doing it. But it, I, again, I've come back to say there was a lot on, on him. I think if there's anything on what that is, it's spotting good talent and trying to harness and, and give that talent the opportunity to do so. And then from there, it's giving the kind of blueprint on how to go and set that up. We've done it, right? We've done it for other people. We've done it in previous businesses and now we've gone and done it here. We've done it in the UK for ourselves. We've then done it in, from London into the knots and the regional markets there and so on as well. We've done it in different sectors. So we've got a very good blueprint on how to go and set something up. We've got countless stories of people. I've got one lad I'm just thinking of at the moment. No previous rec experience and built a book on contracts, 10 grand a week GP in under a year. Yeah. He's just become senior con in and uh, just over 12 months from a standing start. Um, and he's on his director's lunch back in Knotts today. I've seen it uh, on your LinkedIn today, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've, and that's not a one-off. People come into our business, Jess, who I think of in Knotts, she's got a few years prior experience, been in bigger businesses, has come on, and um, in under her first year, is 3X her biggest ever fee, 160 grand fee. What do you think this is, though? Like, this, these are all the what's happening, but why? Yeah. What is it? What is it? Because of the environment that we've created, because of the opportunity, because where we position ourselves in the marketplace, because of how, because of the value that we add to our clients and the way that we'll do things differently. 
again, take the Wilco's one, for example, they'd been quoted six months to find that person. Granted, it's six weeks. Yeah. Where a lot of our competition have been knocking around for decades now, big global corporates, there is little to no innovation in those businesses. Yeah. So when they're doing the retained searches, it's still typical third, third, third. It's this, it's that, it's blah, blah, blah. It's cookie cutter approach. And it's it's more about their approach rather than telling anything to the needs of the client. We'll actually listen, hear the client, and then build a solution around them in a different way for them, depending on what the needs and requirements are. So I can't remember the last time we've done third, third, third in terms of fee structures and so on. Yeah. Is it is it retained business you're looking to achieve at that level, or you just, just structure it in a different way? No, it's, it's retained. Like, where... At the moment, we, we do a lot of retained work. Um, we still do contingent. We're now pushing the business to become a product-based organization. So we will do nothing on contingent at all. Right. And I want our retained business, i.e. what we call our key hire, single hire retainer, to be our lowest value product. And I don't just mean value in terms of financial value. I mean value that we're able to give to the client and offer to the client. The what, what we're doing now, developing now, we've got, if. I can take one example. So I'm in front of a fashion business in New York with uh, one of my lead guys here. Sat in front of the CEO. Ben's just gone through completely with him how to structure a whole marketing department because at the moment they outsource pretty much all of it. And then he's turned around to me and said, have you got anything to add? So look, with all due respect, he's just told you who you want to hire for this, why you want to hire this type of skill set, how to structure the bonus, how to do the long-term incentive plan, and structure that and why. And then he's told you the next kind of profile that you want to hire after that and how that person's skill set should be complementing this person and fill the gaps that they don't have, what that person should be doing, how to structure a whole marketing department. If that's not enough to give you confidence, I've got fuck all else to add, to be honest with you, yeah, on this. Yeah. What I can do is show you what we're now starting to develop and how we'll grow your brand as a business as well. So put some of the videos that we're now creating and the marketing that we're creating, the campaigns that we're creating for our clients and how we represent the businesses that we work with. And he's looked at me and thought, shit, I, no one else is representing us like that. That's what, how I want to be represented in the marketplace. Yeah. So then we've built that and we've got that kind of content out there for around Madrid, for a Seedlet, for a Wagamama's, all sorts of businesses. Renault F1, all sorts. But no one else is doing that. And so that's how we're driving a lot of change innovation now. It's amazing. It's, it, 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 it all sounds great. When, when would you say there's a time where it's not been so great. When can you look back and think you really worried about the business or you, you know, you're under some serious pressure and you doubted yourselves? I honestly, hand on heart, I can't say I've been worried about the business and that's not a soundbite. That might sound arrogant. Don't care. I haven't been worried about the business overall. Don't get me wrong. There's been shit weeks. There's been some shit months. I look back to COVID, and that was a tough period from uh, you, those first few weeks. That office, that you put all that money into the office in Nottingham, didn't you? Yeah, but we, we didn't get caught in that. That was a conscious decision. March 23rd, we went into lockdown, right? Hmm. I think it was April the 15th we signed for that office with eyes wide open of right, right. the world's turning to shit. It was, we looked at other options. We were homeless and not in that. Our lease had happened to run out in the previous office. We were moving into sorting out this office before COVID had happened and then COVID had hit and then we just delayed a little bit and we were umming and ahhing, do we still go ahead with it or do we look at other options? And we just turned around and said, you know what? 
we'll make our way through. One way or another, we've got the confidence to back ourselves. We'll make our way through. We'll do whatever needs to be done. We'll make our way through. We'll be all right through this. And we signed knowing, I didn't think we'd know it's going to be quite as long as it was, but we signed knowing that the world's turned to shit. But we backed ourselves to come out through it. And then we have to get all the work done through it. And at one point, we're ready to pick up a van, drive it to France, pick up some of the glass. We've got the like the frosted glass that turns frosted at a button. Right. That came from France. They won't deliver it. So we're we're looking at where can we get a van and not break any laws and um, break the glass. lockdowns and everything <laughs> to to go and bring the glass over. Genuinely. Yeah. And what happened? Uh, did you get it over? They ended up delivering it in the end. Yeah. And um, I think we pushed hard on it. But again, sign of the times. We were refusing to do that on a weekday because the weekend was for sales. Uh, sorry, the weekdays were for sales. It was weekends only that were going to be um, uh, like doing something like that. But um, tough period for a few weeks because you, you're not trying to just fill the time, but you're trying to keep everyone engaged in that as well. Yeah. A message from our sponsor, Vincere. Another of their products is known as Time Temp. This is your complete integrated timesheet workforce management solution. It's pre-built, it's pre-integrated, and it's designed so no matter how much your business grows, you'll be able to keep track of every single worker in one place in your CRM. All the changes inside Vincherry will sync with TimeTemp and will be fed back into your account, automating the entire process with two-way sync from your front to back office. Vincherry's TimeTemp enables you to create shift schedules, search available workers, shortlist and book assignments in seconds. They'll also allow you to track time, track leave, track expenses within their built-in payroll engine. It's called Door Clock. And then they've also got a mobile app for the on-the-go worker. If, again, you're looking to get more from your CRM, Vincere's Time Temp Solution is another tool that enables you to perform more of your business-critical processes in your CRM. Find out if you could use Time Temp via the link in the show notes. Right, let's get back to it. We're in an economic period where a lot of people in our industry are, are, are worried. You know, they're, they're, they're skiing a downturn. Their clients are not investing as much. Their clients are a bit bit more careful with their cash. Have you ever been in a position where you've felt pressure from that, that, you know, what you're making is not necessarily in line with what you're spending and what and, and the clients are, t- are starting to dip in terms of their appetite to spend on, on recruitment? No. We've had seven years of consecutive year-on-year growth. I put a lot of that down on, on Scott's door, positively. From day one, he's got a much stronger head for numbers than I do. I've got an appreciation and can do some analysis, but the, the rate he does it and the depth and thinking that he does it, short of needing the qualifications, he could be a CFO is that good with his numbers. So the proof, and personalities-wise as well, he's a bit more conservative, a bit more cautious around money than I am. So that balance works well, right? Um, no, he put in certain safeguards from day one, which were good ideas. And even to this day, even though we've got a head of finance who's ex-Man United, literally he joined us from United, um, qualified background, KPMG, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he still keeps his own cash flow document up to date every single week, is militant with it and so on as well. So we've always had something called internally called a six-month account. We don't really look at it anymore because we haven't needed to for a good few years. But for the first few years, we always had this thing that if we didn't bring in another penny as of today, we could pay everything and everyone, staff, bills, CRMs, blah, 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 for six months. Yeah. And we'd be fine. Yeah. And we started that from day one. And then that just got past the six months. It got to 12 months, got to 15. We had enough cash. And we just we kind of stopped. Yeah. 
looking at that uh, or discussing it every week, he still looks at that. So that prudence has been in from day one. So I haven't been worried in that sense because we've got enough lead time to ensure that if anything was ever going wrong, we've got enough time to rectify it. Um, and some will argue, and up to them, but some will say six months is too long. Like, keep it a three-month type number. Um, that's fine. But it's, it's steady. You say that, but then, and, and people do say three months, and then the rest of it, just invest it or whatever. But yeah. that, that might be why a lot of the businesses in the industry now are starting to panic, and they're starting to think, fuck, I'm going to cut spend myself and stop hiring. And they're, they're very reactive to the industries, to the market conditions. Whereas if you've got a nice buffer, you can ride waves better. You can see through the, you, you can make less reactive decisions, right? You can be a bit more patient with things. And but we haven't needed to. We're seventy percent up on this um, on year to year so far. Wow. So you know this whole thing of the markets this and the markets that. For the, do you know what? If you're in a deco, if you're a haze, if you're a page, if you're at that level, yeah, cool. The market will have impact. You know, if you're at our level, or a little bit bigger, or smaller than us. I'm sorry if you're using the market as an excuse. Short of the kind of things of where, like an oil and gas, where a good few years ago that really crashed. And if you're all in on an oil and gas, something like that, cool. Short of something as a huge crash like that, it's a crutch and it's a bullshit excuse that people use and point to rather than looking internally. So when anyone talks about market and so on, we look at ourselves first and say, actually, our, if our yeah. processes, if every proper BD process is on point, and I know that we're going at it full tilt and we still can't do anything cool, then I'll put it on the market. But I can't even say that we're at 100% capacity and we're 70% up on last year. Yeah. So it's not a market thing. No, makes sense. I like that attitude though. Just fucking look at yourself first. Stop taking external factors as, an, as a problem. It was the same thing through COVID. Being part of a few um, networking groups and the WhatsApps on it, I started editing groups and I was getting frustrated because more more like owners and, and leaders were focusing on the government this and COVID that and the response this and blah, blah, blah. Unless you're going to become an MP, unless you're going to get a placard and stand outside and protest and try and actually make meaningful change, shut up. Just get on with it. Control what you can control in your world and for the people around you reliant on you. Do what you need to do and focus on that. There's no point going through all of that. And too many people just distracted with this and that and Boris this and government that and lockdown this and blah, 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 blah. You're right. You're bang on. What what I'm interested in now as we've got 10, 15 minutes left is talk about the future, right? So when yep. we did offline, you talked about a 60 million number, right? Yep. You talked about this valuation that you want to achieve. Um, talk, tell me through, well, where's this come from? And let's go, let's explore it a little bit. So we've always had the ambition from day one of um, rewarding above everything else, above the progression, the experience, the, the money that people earn through the journey. We always had this thing of when we come to do our event that we wanted to say thank you to those that have grown the business with us. So a couple of years ago, Scott and I, we've always been 50-50. Scott and I have committed to giving a third of the business away, an equal share of the business. So we've diluted ourselves to 33% each. And we're giving a third of the business away to FB to our people essentially as well and it's a real simple kind of premise of the more you've helped the business grow the more value you've added into the business and its valuation its growth the more you'll learn yeah. if we'd have done 10% or 15% given that sort of thing away one or two might have earned something special some would have earned a little bit here or there but not enough 
And we couldn't in good conscience say, you're building this with us if it wasn't anything other than 33%. So that's why we commit to giving such a big chunk away as well. Now, neither of us have got any sort of exit plan. We're not looking to sell to anyone or anything like that. So what we want to do is take the business public and list it on AIM. So we've got, it's all back to science and numbers and everything, but we've got an event that we want to trigger when we hit a 60 million pound valuation. We, we're confident on how we're gonna get there. The international growth is a big part of that. The US is a big is a part of that. Further international growth is a big part of is that. Is it all organic or would you look at acquisition yourself to get there? We're looking at that right now. We've got yeah. offers and, and stuff like right now as well. Yeah. Um, so it's whatever is going to fuel that growth in the right way, but in the quickest time frame possible. Yeah. We're not looking at this as a, a 10, 15, 20 year play. Um, I'd be disappointed. I, I'd, I'd be bitterly disappointed if it, it kind of took that long. And again, immature, mature, whatever, I respect those other businesses, but where so many of them have kind of taken 20 plus years to get to that size, yeah. if it's taken us that long, I'll be bitterly disappointed. What level of EBIT do you need, do you think, to get to 60 million? We're in for six months. Six mil EBIT, 10 yeah. times multiply. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're confident we can get there based on a number of factors as we're growing the business. That product piece is big for us as well. We're launching a tech platform, as, which is aimed at the, the growth and scale business market as well. On a global basis, that's huge. And it's more of a growth and enablement platform for them as well. So we've not even finished the build, but we've been in talks with like a wealth management firm who think that they can introduce it to their own clients and so on on a subscription basis. Right. So we would reposition this business of not, when we're going out to do that, this business is then not considered a traditional rec business and therefore you can't value it as a traditional rec business. Right now, worst case, we're looking at a 10 times multiple on six million. However, if we've actually got monthly recurring rev, annual recurring rev, whichever one you want to measure it on, through yeah. the subscription on the tech platform, through us being a product-based organization, that skyrockets that valuation up. And you can't value us in the same way that you would value a rec business. Is it, is it all perm at the moment, your business? Oh, what, currently? Yeah. No, we've got equal split and perm contract. But is it, what, what percentage is the split? Not far of being 50-50. Right, good, yeah. Yeah, so you've already got that recurring revenue model, yeah. annuity revenue, yeah. Yeah. But again, that is still traditional rec in the way that we're doing that. Whereas when, as we're looking to launch the tech platform and as we shift the business to become a product-based organization, as a product-based organization, there's no, there's no contingent piece in there. So it's all guaranteed rev coming through. It's all MRR, however you want to measure it. Yeah. Um, and remind us what, for the listeners, like what is this tech play that you're going to build? What, what is it actually going to do? So without necessarily saying too much, it's aimed much more at the uh, senior end of the marketplace where it's a growth and enablement platform for growing and scaling businesses, where we do our best work with growing businesses and scaling organizations. So when they want to take themselves to that next level, they're able, they'll have their subscription into our platform and then actually enables them to grow their business, whether that's through their uh, finance strategy, whether that's through their IT strategy, whether that's through talent, but at a very reasonable, cheap cost, not even reasonable, it's a cheap yeah. cost for them, especially for the, the ROI that they get back from it as well. Right. But it, it, it would be it would be applicable as much for a zero to 10 first 12 month type business as it would be for a coming up to a thousand heads, um, aiming to push for a unicorn. Right. But caters to that market. What it probably doesn't cater as much to is 
your real large global corporates who've been established for decades, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is, it's not really intended for that marketplace. And when it comes to the sixty million event, yeah. what what happens then? Like, what what are you aiming to or hoping that will be achieved through that event? So we want to set the business public list on the AIM. Yeah. And then for us, it's not it's not a money player or a personal game player or anything. Plenty will take, I'm sure, take the money and, and cash it out. Plenty will keep it in their choice at the time. Neither Scott nor I are looking to leave the business or anything at that point either. For us, it's the the experience of cool. We've now got a publicly listed business. Different environment, different set of rules, different bureaucracy that you've got to get involved in and, and adhere to. Are we good enough to then continue to grow and build the business through the next phase? where you've got a different set of challenges, where you've got shareholders to answer to, where you've got the red tape, where you've got a lot of different factors and considerations. As leaders and as owners, are we good enough to do that? And that a lot of it is more of a business bucket list to go out and see if we can then take it to the next level within well, that. You've already proven you can, you know, you're a privately owned business, you can achieve great things. You've proven that to yourself. So if yeah. it's more of a, can we do it, right? It's a, yeah, 100%. You, don't need, you don't need to do it. You can be financially free and have an amazing life without it. And some people do not want to work. Like the guy I interviewed last week said, categorically, I do not want to work for anyone else. You know, he's a bit older, he's 46 and he wants to get to a hundred million um, revenue, right? From 10 million to a hundred million. But he's the opposite. He's got no time frame. It could take five years or 10 years or 20. He's not asked. But the one thing he says is, I never want to work for anyone like that. He never wants to feel like he's got a boss. Um, and a shareholder, could, that whole dynamic can change everything. But you you just sound excited by that journey, right? By the, it, by it, the journey, it's right? more about the journey. I don't think about the financial thing. I was saying to Scott, not that long ago, I've never once made a decision in this business because of our own financial position or what it might mean for it's taking money out of our own pocket or not. I mean, we run it lean in that sense anyway. Like people are asking us all the time, when you fly, why don't you fly business? I was in on the plane and the person, the lady I sat next to is like, if it's your business, why aren't you flying in business? Yeah. Because the average cost of a business ticket is about eight to 10 grand and that's someone I could employ for that sort of money. Yeah. Not willing not to worth. do it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just, we're not willing to do it. Um, <laughs> I don't either, I don't know. I mean, I don't think we're at your level, but we could afford it and I don't want to do it. I've got no, in, like, I just don't. Yeah, I have no aspiration for that. It's that thing of, we're not in a mode where it's about personal gain. A lot of it is about the experience. For me, on a personal perspective, it's seeing how good we are, <laughs> confident in my own belief. And yeah, you get questions, you get times where you question yourself. But the thing I always say to my people and the thing I always come back to is, in those tough times, this is exactly what I wanted. I wanted to run my own business. I wanted to grow a business. You can't just take all the good times and stuff and then say, oh, like this is shit, why is it shit? Actually, the shit times is exactly what I wanted as well. Yeah. Yeah, you, well, you got to take the rough with this move, right? Yeah. So outside of work, like, how are you? Because you sound, I get the vibe, you're just on it, right? I get the vibe, you're both just on it. But obviously, you're, you know, you've got lives outside of work. How do you both make sure you're not neglecting family and partnerships and children or whatever and not becoming complete business obsessed robots? Like, what's your strategy for that i think scott's better than i am he's probably got a greater setup around him in the sense that he's from knots he's got friends close and where he's grown up uh, and so on i'm probably a little bit worse in that situation now i live in milton Keynes now but i've got family and some friends in northampton but i haven't really got anyone around in mk so for me 
Uh, and I also travel a lot as well, in the sense of on a daily basis, minimum three hours. It's between three and four hours a day of traveling because I, I go up to down to London, up to Knotts every day. Right. Haven't got anything in MK around, or I'm no here kids, in New York. No kids don't even to worry about. You got, sorry? No children to worry about or anything. Like no, that. no, I've got two kids. Have you? So, yeah, point being for me is um, the office isn't close by, and my commuting time is, is quite a lot on a daily basis. It's not the best on that. And then I'm in New York every sort of third or fourth week. So then I'm out here for a working week every time as well. So how from do you, a, how do you fam how does your family cope with that? And what's your kind of dynamic? It's not easy, don't get me wrong. And as the kids getting older, my eldest is coming up to five, my youngest is coming up to two. They feel it and understand it more now. When they're babies, you, they don't understand anything, do they? And that's hard on my wife. Still hard on my wife. But it's harder it's getting harder on the kids which is then in turn getting harder for me as well because like oh, i miss you don't go away that that kind of thing like, all yeah. the, the tears and stuff as well um is your wife like struggling with that or does she is she just so used to you now being that guy both yeah. I, th I think there's times where if you've got two young kids on your own and one's teething and they're both waking up i think there was a day this week when i'm out here and i got a message they're both up at half one yeah. like at the same time she can't split herself in two yeah. um so in those moments yeah and then if it's been you're getting them to school and you're taking them both out and if it's been a difficult morning yeah that's gonna be hard on it so um there are good times there are bad times in it um at the same time but it's i would hope and they do there's that there's an understanding for what it's about and what it's for um and that's something bigger at play but on the flip side my kind of sacrifices are i don't have any like i used to play cricket i don't anymore mm. and i haven't for the last few years since I had kids um i don't really have and all my kind of spare time on my non my non-work time yeah is trying to maximize it as much with the kids and yeah. family as much as possible i'm not great with seeing my friends I'm not great at seeing kind of extended family and I miss a lot of things in that regard and functions and so on. And sometimes I'm just tired and sometimes I just don't want to. So uh, there's an element of sacrifice that goes along with this growth journey that you've been on that people need to be aware of. It's not all positive, right? You've got to sacrifice them. It is, but I think there's some of that stuff is I've got that natural makeup. I think the harder bit is for them, namely my kids, my wife and so on. Uh, because they might not have Simon, she's grown up in a completely different environment, completely different mindset, not interested in business in the same way, etc. So she doesn't have the same ambitions and same mindset. Yeah, yeah. I think it's infinitely more hard on her because she hasn't got that head or that mindset towards it. Whereas I saw my dad. And so I've been influenced more than I ever believed through that. And so where I might think something's more acceptable or is okay, because I grew up with it, Dad worked so hard when we were growing yeah, up, yeah. right? That I think something sexual okay, she might not do, but yeah. she hasn't had that influence. So I think it's harder on them than it is on me. Yeah, I can see a similar situation because me and my wife, we dated when we were younger. Then I went off, and at the time I was a school teacher in Sheffield, she was as well. And we had a very similar upbringing, very similar. We were very similar. <laughs> then I went traveling, moved to London, got into recruitment, did all these things, but started a business. And then we got back together 10, 10, 11 years later. And I'm a completely different. She's got two kids, six and eight years old at the time. I'm an entrepreneur, and we are 
now living in completely different worlds and then now we've we tried to merge them and it's been you know it's been really interesting it's been hard it's been amazing but even now like you know what are we recording this at 3 30 3 15 tonight we've got the kids mates round and we're gonna have a barbecue and there's all stuff going on which means that you know i am going to be present for it but i'm i'm sacrificing something else to do that which i didn't have to do two years ago i think that's yeah i think that Part of the hardest bit of it is, I think she could be more okay with if I'm away per se, if I was more present when I'm at home, but I'm not, it's something I'm trying to work on, but I'm not the best at it. So sometimes I've been away all day, I'm getting home at 8 p.m., she's put the kids to bed herself. And then I'm walking through the door and I'm on the phone. Yeah. As in, I'm on a call or I'm responding or a call will come because we've got the US guys and stuff as well, right? And I'm doing everything that can support these guys even from there. I did a podcast a few weeks ago at uh, half 12 in the morning. So she's like, what the fuck are you doing like, up that late? And then I'm not, I'm not coming to bed till 2 a.m. Yeah. by the time that's done. Yeah. It's like, so th- that can have its impact as well. And I often think that those bits are the hard bits. I guess it's just about being aware of it isn't it and trying to communicate through it and do your best like you've made the decision to grow you want to do 60 million and you can see the steel in your eyes about doing that um and other people completely go the other way where it's a lifestyle business and it's just about their family and support and that whatever suits you i think is is great what i love about the show is it's about different different perspectives on a recruitment agency growth story right so everyone's got their own version of of what that means um we run out of time look Love the episode. Love what you guys are doing. The energy is just yeah. You you no doubt going to achieve what you're going to. I know you are. I can tell by the way you have got no. There's no doubt in that. Um, I'm excited to watch it. Watch the journey. You know, I know Scott. Uh, I know Scott well. I want to. I want to. I want to see how you guys get on. I'd love to get you both on in the future. Um, and see if we can. I don't know if we're closer to that 60 million and what's happened in between. If anyone's listening and wants to be either a part of the journey. You know, they're looking for a new role or another founder who wants to just pick your brains. Are you okay with that if they just drop you a note on LinkedIn? Yeah, 100%. I always say that more than happy to provide any advice, support, learns from our mistakes, from our successes. More than happy to pass on. We've, we've reached out to people who have done so much to kind of advise us and help us. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Legend. All right, buddy. We'll, um, we'll get that linked up. hope people do take you up on that because I think you're – you know, for the age and level you guys are at, the business growth, I think you're doing some unbelievable things that not many people are. So it's worth investing in that time. And let's get you on again soon. All right. Take care of yourself. Thank you, as always, for listening to today's show. I truly, truly hope that you got value from it. That's the only reason I take time every week is to ensure that my audience, future and existing recruitment owners are learning from each other to make this industry that I love so much stronger. Today's episode was brought to you by Hoxo Media. I am the CEO and founder of Hoxo Media, and we are the world's leading content marketing and personal branding agency for recruitment businesses specifically. So we are working with over 200 agencies and 2,000 recruiters right now, both managing the brands, producing content, building written video podcast content for niche recruitment agencies all over the world, as well as coaching at a desk level individual recruiters in your businesses how to be better on LinkedIn that's how to brand themselves that's how to produce content that's how to use 
the opportunity on LinkedIn to get traffic to their profiles and turn that into business. We're coaching people all over the world every single day. If any of that sounds of interest, please do visit www.hoxomedia.com or drop me, Sean Anderson, a personal message on LinkedIn. I would love to talk to you. I'll see you soon.